Welcome to this reading of the Poem of the Man-God. Thank you for joining me. The Poem of the Man-God is a private revelation of the life of Jesus of Nazareth as recorded by the visionary Maria Valtorta. Now out of print, this five-volume set of books is a narration of the life of Jesus beginning with the birth and childhood of the Virgin Mary through the public ministry of Jesus, his passion and resurrection, and closing with the Assumption into Heaven. The narration is interspersed with direct dictations from Jesus, messages for the whole world. These highly inspired visions were recorded by Maria Valtorta around the time of the Second World War, yet she did not consider herself the author. They were first published without her name, shortly before her death, and only posthumously was her name added. My sole aim with this podcast is to share the poem of the man-god with the world. I hope you'll enjoy them as much as I have, and if you do, please share them. Thank you for listening. Poem of the Man-God, Book 2, Numbers 173, The Sermon on the Mount, The Beatitudes, Part 4. The Sermon on the Mount continues. The crowd is growing larger and larger as the days go by. There are men, women, old people, children, rich and poor alike. The couple, Stephen and Hermas, is always present, although not yet associated with the old disciples led by Isaac. And there is also the new couple formed yesterday, the old man and the woman. They are in the very front, near the comforter, and they look much more cheerful than yesterday. The old man, to make up for the many months or years during which he was neglected by his daughter, has laid his wrinkled hand on the knees of the woman, and she is caressing it, and out of the inborn instinct of a morally sound woman to be maternal. Jesus passes near them to climb up to his rustic pulpit, and while passing he caresses the head of the old man, who looks at him as if he already saw him as God. Peter says something to Jesus, who makes a gesture as if he wanted to say, it doesn't matter. But I do not understand what the apostle says. Peter remains near Jesus, and Jude Thaddeus and Matthew join him. The other apostles are scattered among the crowd. Peace be with you all. Yesterday I spoke of prayer, of swearing, of fasting. Today I want to instruct you in other perfections. They are also prayer, trust, sincerity, love, religion. The first thing I will speak to you of is the right use of riches, changed into as many treasures in heaven by the good will of the faithful servant. The treasures of the earth do not last, but the treasures of heaven are eternal. Are you fond of what is yours? Are you sorry to die because you will no longer be able to look after your property and you will have to leave it? In that case, transfer them to heaven. You may say, what is of the earth will not enter heaven and you have taught us that money is the filthiest thing on earth. How can we transpose them to heaven? No, you cannot take the money material as it is, into the kingdom where everything is spiritual. But you can take the fruit of money. When you give a banker your money, why do you do it? That he may make it bear interest. You do not deprive yourselves of it, not even temporarily, that he may give you back the same amount. But out of ten talents, you want him to give you back ten plus one or even more. Then you are happy and you praise the banker. Otherwise you say, he is honest, but he is a fool. And if instead of ten plus one he should give you nine, saying, I lost the rest, you would denounce him and send him to prison. What is the fruit of money? 
Does the banker sow your money and water it to make it grow? No. The fruit is given by a skillful handling of business, so that by means of mortgage deeds and loans at interest, the money is increased by the premium rightly requested for the loan of the gold. Is it not so? Now listen. God gives you earthly riches. To some people he grants a great deal, to some only as much as they need to live. And he says to you, Now it is up to you. I have given them to you. Gain by these means an end as my love wishes for your own good. I have entrusted you with them, but not that you may turn them into evil. Make your wealth bear interest for this real fatherland, both because of the reputation I hold you in and out of gratitude for my gifts. And here is the method to gain this end. Do not accumulate your treasures on the earth, living for them, being cruel for them, cursed by your neighbor and by God on account of them. It is not worth it. They are never safe in this world. Thieves can always rob you. Fire can always destroy your houses. Diseases of plants and animals can exterminate herds and orchards. How many things undermine your property, whether it is real estate and unassailable, such as houses and gold, whether its nature is liable to be damaged, such as all living things, vegetables and animals, or precious cloths, they can be ruined. Thunderbolts, fire and floods can destroy houses. Thieves, blight, dry weather, rodents and insects can, can damage fields. Catching diseases, fever, crippling murrain can destroy cattle. Moths and mice can ruin valuable pieces of cloth and precious pieces of furniture. Oxidation can corrode vases, chandeliers, and artistic gates. Everything is subject to destruction. But if you turn earthly welfare into supernatural good, then it becomes free from all damage by time, men, and calamities. Store up your treasure in heaven, where thieves cannot break in, and where no calamities occur. Work with merciful love for all the miseries of the earth, you may caress your money and kiss it if you wish so. You may rejoice at the plentiful crops, at the vineyards laden with grapes, at the countless number of olives which bend the branches of the olive trees, and at your prolific sheep with turgid udders. You may rejoice at all that, but not in a sterile or human way. Rejoice with love and admiration, with supernatural delight and foresight. Thank you, my God, for this money for these crops, plants, sheep, and for this business. Thank you, sheep, plants, meadows, business, which serve me so well. May you all be blessed, because, through your goodness, O Eternal Father, and through yours, O things of mine, I can do so much good to those who are hungry, or are naked, homeless, sick, alone. Last year I did it for ten. This year, as I have more money, Although I gave away much as alms, and the crops are more plentiful and the flocks larger, I will give twice, three times as much as last year, so that everybody, also those who have no wealth of their own, may partake of my joy and bless with me the eternal Lord. That is the prayer of a just man, a prayer which, joined to your deeds, transfers your wealth to heaven, and not only keeps it eternally for you, but you will find it increased by the holy fruit of love. Store your treasure in heaven so that your heart may also be there, above and beyond the risk that not only your gold, your houses, fields, and herds may suffer damage, 
but that your very heart may be attacked and robbed, corroded, burnt, and killed by the spirit of the world. If you do that, you will have your treasure in your heart, because you will have God within you until the blessed day when you will be in him. But in order not to diminish the fruit of charity, take care to be charitable in a supernatural spirit. What I said in regard to prayer and to fasting applies also to charity and to any other good action you may do. Keep the good you may do free from the violating sensation of the world. Keep it immune from human praise. Do not profane the scented rose of your charity and of your good deeds, as it is a true censer of perfumes agreeable to the Lord. Good is profaned by a proud spirit, by the desire to be noted when doing good, and by the quest for praise. The rose of charity is then dribbled and eaten away by the big slimy snails of satisfied pride, and the censer is filled with the fidget straw of the litter on which the proud man basks like a well-fed animal. Oh, those deeds of charity accomplished to be pointed out by people, it would be better, much better, if they had not been performed at all. Who does not do them commits a sin of harshness. Who does them letting people know both the amount given and the name of the person to whom it was given, and begging for praise commits a sin of pride by making the offer known, as he says, see how much I can afford? sins against charity because he humbles the beneficiary by making his name known and commits a sin of spiritual avarice as he wants to store up human praises it is straw nothing but straw let god and his angels praise you when you give alms do not have it trumpeted before you to draw the attention of passers-by and win their praise as the hypocrites do who want to be praised by men and thus give alms only when they can be seen by many people they too have received their reward and will not have another one from god do not commit the same sin and do not be so presumptuous but when you give alms your left hand must not know what your right hand is doing so secret and modest is your almsgiving and then forget about it do not linger admiring your deed swelling with it like the toad that contemplates itself with its veiled eyes in the pond and sees also the clouds trees and a chart near the bank reflected in the still water, and when it sees that it is so small as compared to them, which are so large, it swells up with air until it bursts. Also your charity is nothing as compared to the infinite, which is the charity of God. And if you wanted to become like him, and make your small charity so big as to be equal to his, you would fill yourselves with the wind of pride, and would end up by perishing. Forget about it. Forget about the action itself. A light, a sweet voice will always be present with you and will make your day bright, sweet, and happy, because that light will be the smile of God. The honey will be the spiritual peace, which still comes from God, and the voice will be the voice of God, the Father, who will say to you, Thank you. He sees the hidden evil and the concealed good and will give you a reward for them. I can... Master... You give the lie to your own words. The sudden resentful remark comes from the center of the crowd. They all turn round in the direction of the voice. There is some confusion. Peter says, I told you, eh? When there is one of those over there, everything goes wrong. Many people in the crowd hiss and grumble against the reviler. Jesus is the only one who remains calm. He has folded his arms and is standing 
tall as he is, on his rock, with the sun in front of him and his dark blue tunic. The reviler, heedless of the reaction of the crowd, goes on. You are a bad master because you teach what you do not do, and... Be quiet, go away, shame, shout the crowd. And again, go back to your scribes. The master is quite enough for us. Let the hypocrites go with the hypocrites, you false masters, usurers. And they continue. But Jesus thunders out. Silence, let him speak. And the crowd no longer shout, but they whisper their insults, glaring at him at the same time. Yes, you teach what you do not do. You told us that we should give alms without being seen, and yesterday, in the presence of a whole crowd, you said to two poor people, Stay, and I will appease your hunger. I said, Let the two poor people stay here. They will be the blessed guests who will give flavor to our bread, nothing else. I did not say I wanted to satisfy their hunger. Which poor man has not at least some bread? It was my joy to extend to them our good friendship. Of course, you're cunning, and you can play the lamb. The old man stands up, turns round, and raising his walking stick, he shouts, Infernal tongue who are accusing the Holy One, do you think that you know everything and that you can accuse him of what you know? As you do not know who God is and who he is whom you are insulting, so you do not know his deeds. Only the angels and my overjoyed heart know. Listen, men, listen, everybody, and see whether Jesus is the liar and the proud man that this traitor of the temple is saying. He... Be quiet, Ishmael. Be quiet, for my sake. If I made you happy, please make me happy by being silent. Jesus begs him. I obey you, holy son. But let me say only this. The blessing of an old faithful Israelite is on him who assisted me in the name of God. And God put that blessing on my lips for me and for Sarah, my new daughter. But there will be no blessing on your head. I will not curse you. I will not foul with a curse my mouth, which must say to God, Receive me. I did not do it to her who disowned me, and I have already received a divine reward for it. But there is one who will take the place of the innocent you are accusing, and of Ishmael, the friend of God who assists him. The chorus of shouts closes the speech of the old man, who sits down again, while a man sneaks away, followed by insults. The crowds then shout to Jesus, Go on, go on, holy master, we will listen only to you. Listen to us, not to those cursed birds of evil omen. They are jealous because we love you more than we love them. But you are holy, they are wicked. Go on, speak to us. You can see that we have no other wish but to hear you. Our homes, our business, they are nothing. We left them to hear you. Yes, I will speak to you, but do not be upset by what happened. Pray for those poor people. Forgive them, as I do, because if you forgive men their faults, also your Father who is in heaven will forgive you your sins. But if you bear men a grudge and do not forgive them, neither will your Father forgive you your shortcomings, and everybody needs to be forgiven. I was saying to you that God will give you a reward, even if you do not ask to be rewarded for the good you have done. But do not do good to be rewarded, to have a security for tomorrow. Do not do good restricted within narrow limits by fear. And after, will I have enough for myself? And should I have nothing, who will help me? Will I find anyone who will do what I did? And when I will no longer be able to give, will I still be loved? 
Look, I have mighty friends among rich people, and I have friends amongst the poor people of the earth, and I solemnly tell you that the mighty ones are not the most loved. I go to them not for my own sake or profit, but because they can give me much for those who have nothing. I am poor. I have nothing. I would like to have all the treasures in the world and change them into bread for those who are hungry, into homes for the homeless, into clothes for the naked, and into medicines for the sick. You may say, you can cure people. Yes, I can do that and other things, but I do not always find faith in men, and I cannot do what I would do and would like to do if the hearts of men had faith in me. I would like to help also those who have no faith, and as they do not ask the Son of Man for miracles, I would like, as a man to man, to help them. But I have nothing. That is why I stretch out my hand to those who are rich, and I ask them, Give me some alms in the name of God. That is why I have high-placed friends. Tomorrow, when I am no longer on the earth, there will still be poor people. But I shall not be there to work miracles for those who have faith, nor to give alms to lead to faith. But then my rich friends who are in touch with me will have learned how to help my apostles. After their experience with me, will have learned how to give alms out of love for brothers, and the poor will always receive assistance. Yesterday I received from one who has nothing more than all those who are rich have given me. He is a friend and as poor as I am, but he gave me something which no money can buy and which made me happy, bringing back to me so many serene hours of my childhood and youth, when every evening the hands of a just one were laid on my head, and I went to rest with his blessing as the guardian of my sleep. Yesterday this poor friend of mine made me king with his blessing. You thus see that none of my rich friends have given me what he gave. Therefore, be not afraid. Even if you no longer have the power of money, providing you have love and holiness, you can at still at least assist who is poor, tired, and distressed. And I therefore say to you, do not worry too much because you are afraid of having too little. You will always have what is necessary. Do not worry too much about your future. Nobody knows how much future there is ahead of him. Do not worry about what you will eat to support yourselves in life or what clothes you will put on to keep your bodies warm. The life of your souls is by far more precious than your stomachs and your limbs. It is much more valuable than your food and your clothes exactly as material life is more valuable than food and the body more precious than its clothes. And your father knows. You ought to know, too. Look at the birds in the sky. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet they do not starve to death because the Heavenly Father feeds them. And you men, the favorite creatures of the Father, are worth much more than they are. Which of you, with all his talent, can add one single cubit to his height? If you cannot raise your height even by a span, how can you possibly change your future conditions, increasing your wealth to ensure that you will live to a long and happy old age? Can you say to death, You shall come for me when I want? You cannot. Why then worry about your future? And why go to so much trouble, lest you should be left without clothes? Think of the lilies growing in the fields. They do not work or spin. They do not buy any cloth from vendors. Yet I assure you that not even Solomon in all his regalia was robed like one of them. 
Now if that is how God clothes the grass in the field, which is there today and will be thrown into the furnace tomorrow, or used to feed the cattle and will thus end up in ash or dung, how much more will he see to you his children? Do not be of little faith. Do not worry about an uncertain future, saying, What shall I eat when I am old? What shall I drink? How will I clothe myself? Leave such worries to the Gentiles who do not have the lofty certainty of the divine paternity. You have it, and you know that the Father is aware of your needs and loves you. Therefore trust him. Seek first what is really necessary, faith, goodness, charity, humility, mercy, purity, justice, meekness, the three and the four main virtues, and all the others as well, in order to be the friends of God and have a right to his kingdom. And I can assure you that all the rest will be given to you as well, without having to ask for it. There is no rich man richer than a saint, or any man safer than he is. God is with the saint, and the saint is with God. He does not ask anything for his body, and God supplies what is necessary. But he works for his soul, and God gives himself to him in this world, and paradise in the next one. So do not go to any trouble for what is not worth your trouble. Let your imperfections grieve you, not your scanty earthly means. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself, and you will take care of it when you live it. Why worry today? Is life not already quite full of yesterday's sad memories and of today's troubles? That we should feel the need to add the nightmares of tomorrow's uncertainties? Leave to each day its own trouble. There will always be in life more pains than we would wish, without adding the present pains to future ones. Always say the great word of God today. You are his children, created to his likeness. So say with him today. And today I give you my blessing. May it accompany you until the beginning of a new today, of tomorrow. That is, when I will give you once again my peace, in the name of God. And the vision ends. My Way of Life, come from the Confraternity of the Precious Blood, Chapter 6, Man and His World, Human Splendor. The angels blind us by their splendor. Everything about them seems so superb as to test our capacity for absorbing truth. It is so easy here to be incredulous because it is all nearly too good to be true. Men blind us by their very ordinariness. We ourselves are men and surrounded by our kind. Human things, under our eyes all the time, are easily dismissed as prosaic. We miss the splendor of men through that same blindness to the obvious that allows us to take grass and trees, sun and rain, even love and life, for granted, while we stand in open-mouthed wonder before a machine that coughs out cigarettes. Our human splendor is a living splendor. By that fact, we are set apart from stones and dirt, clouds and mountains. By it, we join ranks with all the living from the least plant through the highest angel, to life unlimited from whom all is life. A dead plant, a dead animal, a dead man, are all things 
whose inner spark of life has been extinguished. The splendor is gone, and only memory gives some dignity to the burnt-out ashes of death. We know this can happen, for we have seen it. The vital principles by which things live are lost, and death takes over the kingdom that once belonged to life. Each living creature has that vital principle, its soul, by which it is alive, a thing not to be weighed and measured, yet not to be doubted in the face of the graphic facts of life. Here we touch on a mystery, a profound mystery for a world that sees only bodies as non-mysterious. These souls are not composite things to be taken apart. They are not bodies, but the principles by which bodies come alive. Souls are not peculiar to us, but the common characteristic of all living creatures. The living possess a vital principle by which they live. We begin to enter the realm of distinctively human splendor when we notice that we can know all bodies, a feat as impossible to a soul with anything of the corporal in it as it would be for a man with a bitter taste in his mouth to detect sweetness or a colored eyeglass to show us the verity of the rainbow. There is an independence here that marks out the beginnings of a startling truth, that our souls are not only not bodies, they are fundamentally independent from the corporal world which they dominate. We begin to appreciate this when we notice that the souls of the animals are so tied up with the corporal that they cannot work without it. They produce no vital actions without a decided, sometimes a disastrous, physical change in the body. Notice the contrast, for example, between too much of light for the eye or too much of sound for the ear as against a truth too great for the mind or a goodness too great for the heart. Too great a perfection of light blinds the eye. Too loud a sound deafens the ear. The very things that make possible sight and hearing, if they be too perfect, destroy vision and hearing. On the other hand, the greater the truth, the greater the perfection of the intellect contacting it. The greater the goodness, the more ennobled the heart that reaches out to embrace it. The faculties of our souls are not destroyed by the perfection of their goals, but rather challenged and improved. These things, truth and goodness, do not demand a physical bodily change. They carry no threats of destruction to the seeing mind and the loving heart. Of course, we do get tired. Yet it is not our mind, but the ministering body that is the subject of fatigue. Our eyes and ears our memory and imagination must haul the rough material of our knowing, and they are physical things that can and do need rest and refreshment from the burden of labor. As far as our soul is concerned, such fatigue is as accidental as the termination of a painter's inspiration by fading light or the architect's failure to finish a building because of lack of material. The fact is that we do things beyond the physical. We bypass time to plan for the future and to recall the past. We bind men together by bonds that are purely political. We discover the living beauty of divinity in the dead things of the world and imprison it in poetry. We trace relationships that leave no physical trails and uncover universal truths in a world of singular things. It is this note of independence that is the startling wonder of man's soul. The souls of plants and of animals are not made up of parts, 
not to be located in roots or leaves, head or tail, for by the soul the whole creature lives, roots as well as leaves, head as well as tail. The principle of that living is the soul. That is wonder enough and mystery enough for our time. The added wonder in man is that not only has his soul no parts, vitalizing as it does the whole man, but neither is there any substantial dependence in it. An animal cannot be killed by taking its soul apart, as a fresco is destroyed by scraping it off a wall, inch by inch. But just as the fresco can effectively be destroyed by demolishing the wall on which it is painted, so can the soul of the animal be eliminated by destroying the body in which it depends. No such thing is possible in man. His soul cannot be taken apart, as no soul can, for it has no parts, but neither can it be destroyed by destroying the body of a man. The death of the body is not the end of the soul, for the soul has its own independence, its own actions transcending the physical and corporal. It has its own life, which it gives to the body, but which is not surrendered with the death of the body. The soul of man can be separated from the body, and we call that separation death, but not destroyed. The soul of man, in other words, stands alone in the physical universe, for it is spiritual, bodiless, independent, living by its own life. Once brought into existence, that soul is as immortal as the angels. It cannot be destroyed by disintegration, nor by any attacks on the body which it vitalizes. The soul of every man who has been born into the world lives forever. There is no end to a man's knowledge, no wall that marks the end of his life, no escape from a responsibility that stretches the length of eternity. The wonder of man is that he is a little less than the angels and considerably more than all the rest of the universe. A little less than the angels because he is body as well as spirit. So much more than all the universe because he is so utterly different from the physical world in which no other spirit lives. In our blindness to the obvious, it is easy for us to draw a contrary conclusion. There seems so much resemblance between a sleeping man and a sleeping dog. The struggle of the two from the depths of sleep, the morning stretch and yawn. But it is not the dog who makes coffee, draws up plans for the day, and goes his entirely unpredictable way, piercing the imprisoning walls of time and eliminating distance with his mind and heart even as he paces off the roads with his feet. The first awakening to the wonders of our soul carries the real danger of a kind of spiritual snobbery. It is easy to be tempted to sniff at the body as a lowly animal sort of thing, vulgarizing and profaning its beautiful spiritual consort. It is in this frame of mind that the body is seen as the prison holding the soul in temporary confinement, or as a mere tool to be tossed aside as its edge is blunted. The implication is that man is his soul, and the body merely a nuisance, or at best a clumsy impediment to the soul's glorious powers. This is, in fact, a groundless illusion, springing not so much from admiration of the soul as from contempt for man's humanity. It is an obvious collusion with the facts. It is a man who sleeps, not a body. It is the same man who eats and who thinks, who has toothaches and ecstasies, who loves and who dies. We are not angels, and it is no compliment to our humanity to pretend that we are. It is a guarantee of despair to demand of men that they move on the level of pure spirits. 
they will surely fail before this impossible demand, however heroic their efforts, fail so completely and so repeatedly as to kill all hope. To see the glory of the soul as obliterating the body is to be blind to the soul itself, for it is the vital principle of the body, not a disembodied spirit. Surely this is to be blind to man's humanity. Man is not his soul. Body and soul unite in one substantial unit that we call a man. When these two are separated by death, the soul is no more the man than is the corpse which lies dead before us. It is not John Jones who is then admitted to purgatory, but half of him, his soul. It is only when his body and soul are reunited in the resurrection that the man lives again. If angelism does not become a man, neither does bestiality. We are not angels, but then neither are we merely animals. Yet that is what the fashionable error of our time declares when it sees man as no more than his body, when it smiles pityingly at the notion of a soul that cannot be bathed or spanked. This error, like its twin, does not spring from an admiration of the particular bodies we pass on the street, but from a contempt and a fear of the humanity of man. It, too, is an invitation to despair, for it asks man to live humanly while it denies him the centers of control that make responsibility possible to him. Its popularity lies in its apparent release from the awful burden of human responsibility, yet it punishes crime and admires virtue in the same breath in which it traces all action to sub-rational sources quite beyond our control. Again, the collision with facts is obvious. There are saints and sinners. We are by turns nasty and noble. We are rightly ashamed of our pettiness and exalted by meeting love's challenge by unselfishness. There is justice and choice and responsibility in our human world, things utterly foreign to the plant and animal world. These, then, are some of the wonders of the obvious in ourselves, wonders that we so easily take for granted and to which we become blind. We are alive. We live by a life dramatically different from any other life in the physical universe. The vital principle within us, the soul, easily outtraces time, eliminates distance, and pierces the wall of death. We are not angels, though spiritual. We are not animals, though physical. Of all the physical world, we are in control of our actions and our life, responsible for both, made to be masters first of all our, of ourselves, and then of the physical world in which we live out our days.